0: Christmas and Advent have now uh, come and gone. We've celebrated Christ's birth, and it was a great celebration. And uh, many of you still um, maybe haven't put away your Christmas decorations. You're just letting that linger, just as we are this morning. But I want to know, is that it then? I mean, do we just stop celebrating at this point, and then we wait until next year to celebrate again? Or... Is there more to this good news? Is there more to this gospel than Jesus' birth? And you know that there is, or I wouldn't ask the question, right? But while I think it's totally appropriate for us to put our Christmas decorations away, if we haven't already, um, this, this gospel, this good news, is only the beginning now that Christ has come. And this good news goes way beyond the celebration of his birth because it's meant to make a difference in our lives every day. But in order for the gospel of Jesus Christ to make a difference, we've got to understand this good news in its fullness and become a part of it. And so this morning we're going to begin studying the life of Christ in specific passages in the book of Mark in order that we can understand this good news in its fullness and so that we can live it out. And so what is this good news? Good news means gospel. What is this good news? What is this gospel? I invite you to turn to the book of Mark with me this morning, chapter 1, and we're going to read and talk about verses 1 through 13 this morning. Mark chapter 1. Some of the other gospels have a full account of Jesus's birth. Uh, Mark doesn't doesn't really do that in his approach. He begins with John the Baptist. It says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So, notice first of all in verse 1 that it says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And as I said, the birth of Jesus is recorded in Matthew and Luke, but Mark doesn't mention the birth. Um, But as Jesus begins his ministry, Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news. So there's excitement and good news after Christmas. In fact, Jesus' birth just gets it started. So what is this good news or gospel? That's what I want to talk about this morning very briefly. First of all, Mark doesn't waste any time or leave any doubt about who Jesus is. And the good news for us is that Jesus is not just a good teacher or a good preacher, which is what folks will say at times. He's not just another who says he's the Messiah. He's not just one of many ways. Mark says in verse 1 that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. In other words, he's the Messiah that's been predicted and anticipated for centuries. And not just that, but he is the Son of God. Now, to you and I, that may not sound like a a big, bold statement. We've heard it before, but Mark, in his day and in this time, makes this bold claim that Jesus is outright divinity. And then, by quoting Isaiah in verses 2 and 3, he asserts that John the Baptist is the voice calling out in the desert, which means that Mark is equating John with the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And so the Lord, obviously, is Jesus. So the good news, first of all, is that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And just as we mentioned last week, He is not only a king, but He is the king. The authority and the power of Jesus Christ, which is good news. This baby, born in a manger, is the king over all. And so... If this good news is to make any difference in my life or in your life, we should receive Jesus not just to forgive our sins, which is important, but as the king over everything. And can we even begin to grasp the fullness of who Jesus is? Can we even express it? Well, I like the attempt that preacher Samuel Lockridge made many years ago. And uh, you will also, as you hear him, notice that he has a different style or delivery of preaching than I do. But I sure appreciate his message and his delivery. And you may have heard this before, and if you have, it's worth hearing again. Listen to Lockridge describe the king.
1: He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers, he forgives sinners, he discharges debtors, he delivers the captives, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible he's irresistible you can't get him out of your mind you can't you can't get him off of your hand. you can't outlive him and you can't live without him the Pharisees couldn't stand him but they found out they couldn't stop him Pilate couldn't find any fault in him Herod couldn't kill him death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him yeah that's my king that's my king
0: Wow. Sometimes you have to let a brother speak for you. Uh, That's a good start at the description of Jesus and who he is as the king. The good news for us is that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And Mark explains this in our text and how John the Baptist came to prepare the way for him. But then the good news keeps coming. Look at verse 9. At the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So here, Mark describes the Father, who is the voice, the Son, who is Jesus, and the Spirit like a dove. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation of the world. And some of you read about that in your Bible reading plan this week in Genesis 1. The creation was the project also of the triune God, God in three persons. The world was created and Genesis 1 and John 1 tells us that by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... And we know, as the story continues, the world becomes broken and our relationship with God is broken when sin comes into the world. But now, Mark tells us, the redemption of the world, the rescue and the renewal of all things that's beginning now with the arrival of the king, is also the project of the triune God. And so the good news, if you're following your notes this morning, is that God exists in three persons. God exists in three persons. Now, the Trinity is a difficult thing to understand and to communicate. And and if you think about that for a minute, it really should be. Because we as humans are trying to understand and explain who God is. And so to me, it kind of feels like an ant trying to describe an elephant. Um, Can God be fully comprehended by us? Can we fully understand who He is? I don't think so. And yet, God has revealed himself repeatedly in his word and creation and the Spirit. And so let me try to explain what we know about the Trinity with a confession from me that I don't know it all or comprehend it fully. But let me tell you what we do know from the Bible. God is one God who eternally exists in three persons. I don't mean three gods who work in harmony. Uh, I don't mean a God who takes one form and then sometimes takes another, or one God who simply shows himself in different ways. The Trinity means one God in three persons who know and love one another. This is important, and it does have application for you and I, so just stick with me on this, okay? One God in three persons who know and love one another. So when Jesus comes out of the water, the Father covers him with words of love. Verse 11, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Meanwhile, the Spirit covers him with power. And we're getting a glimpse here of what has been happening in the interior life of the Trinity for all eternity. Mark is giving us good news here. He's giving us a glimpse into the very center of reality. The meaning of life. The essence of the universe. According to the Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify one another. Uh, Jesus says in his prayer, recorded in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so... Each person of the Trinity glorifies the other. So what, you might be thinking? Well, let's go with this a little bit further. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes this a little bit more. He says, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. So, thinking about the Trinity, C.S. Lewis says, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, Lewis says, a kind of dance. Whoa. This church thing just got fun. A dance. It's not dry information and facts. It's a relationship with the perfect living Father. Or the perfect living God, rather. The living God we see in the Trinity is about glorifying one another. So what does that have to do with us? Finally, I'm getting to that. What does that have to do with us? Well, if you are glorifying something when you find it beautiful uh, for what it is in itself, its, it's beauty compels you to adore it, uh, to have your imagination captured by it. Uh, writer Timothy Keller shares how this happened to him ...with music by Mozart. He, at, at the beginning of this, he listened to Mozart in order to get an A in a music appreciation class in college, he says. Uh, he says, I had to get good grades to get a good job. So in other words, I listened to Mozart to make money. But today, Keller says, I am quite willing to spend money just to listen to Mozart... Not because it's useful to me anymore, but because it's beautiful in itself. It's no longer a means to an end. And so for you and I, when it's a person that we find beautiful in that way, we want to serve them unconditionally. When you say, I'll serve as long as I'm getting benefits from it, that's not actually serving people. It's serving yourself through them. That's not serving them, it's using them or getting them to orbit around you. And so to glorify others means to unconditionally serve them, not because we're getting anything out of it, just because of our love and our appreciation of who they truly are. And so our example of this is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are each centering on the others, adoring and serving them. And because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are are giving glorifying love to another, God is infinitely happy. Okay, think about it this way. If you were to find somebody that you adore, someone for whom you would do anything, and you discover that that person feels the same way about you, does that feel good? It feels wonderful. And that is what God has been enjoying for eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are pouring love and joy and adoration into the other, each one serving the other. They are infinitely seeking one another's glory, and so God is infinitely happy. And that is what all of us long for perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect unity, perfect harmony. And if this God has created you and I, which is what we believe, then our lives are meant to be, as C.S. Lewis says, a dance. What does it all matter, Lewis writes? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life is to be played out in each one of us. In contrast... A self-centered life is not dynamic. A self-centered person wants to be the center around which everybody else revolves. Um, And if that's you, you might help people, you might have friends, you might fall in love, as long as there's not a compromise of your individual interests or whatever meets your needs. You might even give to the poor, as long as it helps you feel good about yourself and doesn't hinder your lifestyle too much. Because self-centeredness... Makes everything else a means to an end. And that end is whatever you want or whatever you like, your interests over the interests of others. You could have fun with people, you'll talk with people, but in the end, everything revolves around you. And this is what our world encourages for you and I a self centered existence. It's all about you. And what happens if everyone is saying no? You revolve around me. Um, Try to picture a church or maybe try to picture a hundred people up on the platform this morning and every one of them wants to be the center. What happens if everyone stands up on the platform and says, You move around me. Nobody gets anywhere. and, And the dance becomes hazardous, if not impossible. The Trinity is just the opposite of that. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are characterized by mutually self-giving love. And so no person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around Him. Rather, each of them voluntarily circles and revolves around the others. It's beautiful. And... If this world was made by this triune God, and that's exactly what Mark and the Bible tell us, then relationships of love are what life is really about. And if there is no God, then love is only about chemistry and passing on your DNA to the next generation. And how sad, how dismal, little purpose but to die. And there are many in our world who say, hey, God, he's only one person. I don't buy this Trinity thing. But if you think about that, it's a sad God, a God who is not loved, but needs his creation to love him so that he can have joy. But the good news that I want you to hear this morning is that that is not our God. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God's happiness does not depend on us and our ability to love and praise him? I sure am, because we fail at that. No, the Bible says we have a triune God that already receives perfect love within himself in a far purer, more more powerful form than we human beings could ever give him. So, why did he create us? Well, the answer to that gives us more good news. He must have created us not to get joy, but to give it. The good news is that God not only exists in the perfection of three persons in in one, a perfect harmony or dance, but also that Jesus came to invite you into the dance. Jesus came to invite you into the dance. He must have created us to invite us into the dance to say, If you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am and myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you are made for. You're made not just to believe in me or to be spiritual in some general way, not just to pray and get a little bit of inspiration when things get tough. You are made to center everything in your life on me and to think everything in terms of your relationship to me, God says. To serve me unconditionally. And that's where you'll find your joy. That's what this dance is all about. I don't know how that dancing analogy fits you. For some of you, you're good dancers. And so you're going, yeah, dance. And others of you may be going, I don't dance, Pastor Mark. And I think that, that analogy works in that Dancing is a process of learning how to dance and to be in rhythm and to be in step with one another and so forth. It's not, usually is not a natural thing that happens. It's a process that we're all in together. So learning to dance takes time. And we should be aware that there is opposition to us joining God in this dance. There's opposition. Verse 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. And so, learning and following God's ways are not easy. Once again, Mark echoes the story of creation here. In Genesis, if you remember, the Spirit moves over the face of the waters... God speaks the world into being, humanity is created, history is launched. What's the very next thing that happens after that? The part we don't like, right? The fall. Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And now here in the book of Mark, the spirit, the water, God speaks, a new humanity, history is altered, and immediately the pattern continues with Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And so the Bible tells us that there are very real forces of evil in the world. And we see that almost every day. That Satan, the chief of these forces, is trying to tempt us away from the dance. It's what we see with Adam in the Garden of Eden and again with Jesus in the wilderness. And in the Garden, Adam was told, Obey me about the tree. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. Why was that a temptation? As I said earlier, God created us to revolve around Him, to center our lives on Him. And when God says, don't eat or you'll die, what is our first response? Why? Why, God? And in Genesis, we don't get an explanation. I don't think God gives Adam and Eve an explanation. But they're forced to obey God in what He's doing, um, not knowing the full picture. But when God gives us a command, that's our natural response as well. Why? Why should I do that? What's in it for me? But if we're following God in order to get benefits from Him, then I have to... To press on you a little bit and ask you, is He really your God? Or if that's your mind frame, doesn't He just exist for you? But God was saying, because you love me, don't eat from the tree. Just because I say so. Parents, do you ever say that to your kids? Why? Why? And you say, because I said so. And sometimes we just say that because we're tired. <laughs> but God, I think leaves it open because he wants his children to trust him, to love him, and to follow him. And so he says, Obey me about the tree and you will live. He doesn't explain why. But we know that Adam didn't. We know that Adam and Eve failed the test and the whole human race has been failing the same test ever since. And Satan continues to test us. Satan will come along in your life and he'll say, You know... This whole idea of self-giving love sounds really good, but if you make yourself totally vulnerable and you revolve around other people, that's not going to work. That doesn't work. That's what he'll say. In effect, the same thing happens to Jesus in the wilderness. Though Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus' temptations are, Matthew's gospel does. Matthew basically says that Satan, in a number of ways, was tempting Jesus to stop revolving around the Father and the Spirit and us, to try to get Jesus to center on himself. Well, those temptations don't work. Um, and it doesn't end in the wilderness. Jesus is attacked by Satan throughout his life, and that attack reaches its end in another garden called Gethsemane. But I think it's easy for you and I, to, and I want to close with this thought, you and I can look at Adam and Eve and say, What fools? What fools? Why did they listen to Satan? But when we're honest, we know that Satan's lie is in our own hearts because we're afraid of trusting God. And really, we're afraid of trusting anyone. We focus on ourselves naturally because Satan tells us we should. And that's the way he fights. But God does not leave us defenseless. God said to Jesus, Obey me about the tree. Only this time the tree was a cross. And you will die, he said. And Jesus did. The good news, or the gospel, is that Jesus has gone before you into the heart of a very real battle in order to draw you into relationship with God. To draw you into this beautiful dance. And so live to dance with Him. Trust Him. Even when things are tough. Even when you don't know why. And sometimes when you're in the deepest part of that battle, you're going to be tempted to think about old number one. You will be. But when you're tempted and you're hurt and weak, I pray that you will hear in the depths of your being the same words that Jesus heard. And that's the Father speaking to you. This is my beloved child whom I love. With you. I am well pleased. This is good news. Keep dancing. Keep dancing.